And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we work to make sense of the borderlands of digital media, culture, politics, and memes. My name is Josh Chapdeline, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, we're happy to welcome Principal of Bread and Roses Digital and Executive Counsel at Campaign Workers Guild, Aiden King. I don't buy into the idea that these agencies and these campaigns don't have the money to pay their workers more fairly, that they don't have the, the resources or capacity to be more aggressive about kind of rooting out racism in the workplace, about rooting out sexism and misogyny and harassment and, and you know cracking down on abusers. I, I don't buy it. King shares with us his journey as a digital strategist, from founding the famous r Sanders for president in 2013, to opening Bread and Roses Digital, a democratically owned digital agency working to support leftist causes, organizations, candidates, and nonprofits. We explore productive ways to battle conspiracy theories that fuel so much of popular discourse, what people can do to push through the noise of trolls, and the biggest challenges facing electoral politics today. Before we begin, make sure to subscribe to the Digital Void podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform now. Aiden, thank you so much for joining. It is really a pleasure to connect. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, so... We'll start both at the end and at the beginning. You've been really busy preparing to launch Bread and Roses Digital, but you've had a long path to get here. Can you explain your journey from a great picker to starting your own worker-owned digital agency? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I think I think the the first thing I need to say is it's it's not exactly the most traditional path to entering politics. You know, I I didn't go to school for uh, for poli sci. In fact, I was kind of a, I was quite the apathetic and cynical voter when I was in college, um, as as a lot of young people are, I think. And basically, the journey the journey started my my senior year. The winter of my senior year of college, um, so that was 2013. I, you know, I noticed that Bernie was getting a lot of attention on on Reddit. And as a native Vermonter, I I, I was born and raised in Vermont. Um, the winery that I worked at and did social media for remotely while attending the University of New Hampshire. Uh, was located just outside my hometown. You know, I grew up in a very pro-Bernie household. We had all of his uh, house campaign bumper stickers and Senate signs and pins and and T-shirts and all that jazz. So, I, you know, I took a personal interest in it because uh, uh, I used Reddit a lot just for, you know, random social media. And suddenly here's my, here's my junior senator, democratic socialist, a guy that, you know, for most of his career, never really received the time of day. And here he is blowing up the homepage day after day, week after week. And, you know, I was commenting in one of these threads late at night. Like, I swear it was like two o'clock in the morning. So maybe on a Friday, I might've had a couple of beers. And um, I got into a conversation with this one guy uh, who I later co-founded the, the, the subreddit with. And I was kind of telling him all about Bernie because to him, Bernie was this person he's never heard of. He's never been to Vermont, never paid a lot of attention to, to Vermont politics. Uh, so I kind of told him about Bernie and 
through that conversation late into the night, we we decided, hey, you know what? Let's build a let's build a community online, urging him to run for president. And in the event that he does run for president, which you know at the time seemed like a complete moonshot, like we had no inside intel or anything. It was kind of just wishful thinking. So we made Sanders for president and posted about it in some of the comment chains that were on the front page and, you know, gained like 20,000 subscribers in like the first couple of days. So we knew there was a lot of like attention and love there. So we, you know, we populated it with old video clips of his and, and issues pages and articles and press releases and just kind of whatever content we could find because he wasn't he wasn't the kind of political figure that he is today. So we just kind of were grabbing whatever we could. Fast forward to the very beginning of 2015, I got in touch with some of the digital and social media staff on Bernie's campaign arm and kind of told them about the community and told them, hey, we've got like all these people online. There's all this crazy interest. Do you want us to do anything with it? Like, what should we be doing? And we kind of started that relationship that way. And eventually that evolved, that relationship evolved into such a way where the night before Bernie was going to run for announce his candidacy, um, I got a phone call from Kenneth, the, the digital director. And he basically said, hey, we're going live tomorrow morning and we want to post on your page. Like, will you be ready? Answer was obviously yes. Stayed up super late getting everything ready. It was our first foray into anything this big. So we were just like a bunch of little kids all giddy and excited. He announces in the morning, I think we maybe quadrupled our subscriber count in a single day just because it kind of took the internet by storm. And I haven't really turned back. Uh, I ended up working on that campaign. And and that was kind of just the beginning of, of my path to where I am now. And so you launched Sanders for president in 2014. That was a year before he announced his true candidacy. Yeah, technically, uh, technically it was it was December 7th, 2013. Um, so we were, we were, we were way ahead of the curve. Um, call it naivete, call it wishful thinking, call it, you know, having a couple beers on a Friday night and just being silly on the internet. But yeah, you know, we, we, we jumped off sides, I guess you could say we were, we, we were a little, we were a little premature there. Or you were ahead of the curve. It seems that there was the hunger for some type of digital space for people to inhabit, to share, uh, not just d- discussions about progressive values, but to throw their support behind someone whose electoral legacy was consistent with the rhetoric that they espoused and the actions and the life that they lived. And how did you manage the community once it began to grow? I know you're saying it's a few beers, but once you start to hit 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 folks, it's a lot different than managing a few dozen people or even a modern day Discord server. So how do you, as a digital organizer, begin to moderate and create a healthy community of folks once it hits a critical mass? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I, I was never very good at the moderation side. Um, if I'm being perfectly honest, I, a lot of the fellow moderators, uh, a really good friend of mine, we've been, we've been best friends since we, since we co-founded this thing. His name's David. He's from San Jose. You know, uh, without him and without, without 
a lot of the other moderators that we found early on. And at that point, we were just kind of accepting anybody who who liked the senator's politics and was familiar with the platform. We weren't exactly being gatekeepers, so to speak, because we didn't know what we were doing. You know, so without without them, the thing would have just kind of devolved into this chaotic mess, right? The parts that I was more interested in was not like the day-to-day moderation, but kind of the the drumbeat of organizing asks. And I was, you know, finding content to post daily, especially once the campaign launched and there was actually these tangible goals that we were building towards getting volunteers, getting phone bankers, getting super vols and text bankers and donors and recurring donors and all this stuff. Um, that, that came a lot more naturally to me. I, I think I didn't have a lot of patience for the like the back end management of the platform. A lot of it is really just banning people and giving warnings to people and like removing comments. And it's a very desensitizing experience too. Like everyone kind of, you know, says in a in a casual way, like, oh, the comment sections in YouTube and Reddit and 4chan and Facebook and Twitter, it's all toxic and stuff. But you never really know until you see all the stuff that doesn't make it because, I mean, it's just harrowing. And you're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds a day. So it was finding that balance between, you know, A, is a very decentralized process. It's not like, you know, none of us were getting paid. Uh, we weren't a legal entity. We were just kind of doing this on volunteer time. So really just kind of letting each other do their own thing. And, you know, you just trust one another to, to not screw up. And then the other half is is finding a way to take the priorities that the campaign has laid out, but that they don't have the time or the capacity or the bandwidth early on to talk about every single day, every single hour, and translate that to the to the community and kind of, you know, spread the gospel on their behalf, so to speak. So yeah, those were kind of like the two, those were kind of the two hats you wore. It was a lot. It was stressful. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine. I mean, this was 2015, 2016. Um, I guess this was like roughly a year after Zoe Quinn and Gamergate. So the culture, uh, that very toxic culture already existed, but my gosh, what it's evolved into since. But on the positive side, you were able to not just set goals, but really blast through a lot of goals. And one particular feature of the subreddit that I find to be almost like a digital landmark or um, like a, a digital artifact of the progressive organizing was the the fundraising goals, the $1 million that was raised through AMAs, Ask Me Anythings, and different methods of engagement. So at the time, did you conceive that the subreddit could help to fundraise that much money for the Sanders campaign? And what was the process like creating that uh, tool and integration and finding out the power of that community? Yeah. uh, So no, did not anticipate it at all. I mean, none of us even fully comprehended what was normal for a grassroots fundraising program. So, 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 so when when that success started coming, and when that enthusiasm 
showed itself on, you know, FEC filings and, you know, Politico is like, oh, Bernie just broke a third quarter fundraising record. That was definitely kind of an oh shit moment. Like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. The internet, the internet is more powerful than I think a lot of people gave it credit for. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that has anything to do with uh, some kind of secret sauce or magic formula that that I had or that any other like fundraiser had, you know, officially or not. The the thing that I always came back to is when you have a guy like Bernie and when you have a a record and just like decades of selflessly picking unpopular fights on behalf of ordinary people. And he's just his message has been the same in all the right ways. Um, like it's not like he's was on the wrong side of history and refused to change. It was like he was on the right side of history, but people weren't listening. When you have a guy like that kind of at, 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 as the masthead, everything becomes easier. His team could have sent out an email that consisted of no subject line, no text with just a donate button. And it would have it would have outperformed a fundraising email of like any other senator at the time. It, it's just, it, yeah, it's the secret sauce was the candidate. And we've seen a lot of other candidates since kind of tap into it in a big way. But I don't think anyone really anticipated it becoming what it became, not just the subreddit, but the entire fundraising apparatus, and the entire grassroots apparatus as a whole. Because again, Bernie was a no-name junior senator from Vermont. And like, I kind of thought, that I thought he never stood a chance early on. And um, I know a lot of other people did too. It reminds me of like his press conference that he, he held in front of the, in front of the Capitol building off to the side under like a tree. And there was like maybe eight reporters there. And he kind of like stood out there for a couple minutes and some news panels picks it, picked it up and kind of were like, Oh yeah. And uh, Bernie Sanders, this guy uh, entered the race today. Cool. So it was really, really interesting and, and, and a lot of fun to watch everyone kind of be proved wrong, I guess, myself included. Yeah. And I think that authenticity of the candidate, the candidate himself being the special sauce is so important because sometimes, in especially in a digital space, you find candidates trying to exude a certain type of energy that isn't a natural fit. And oftentimes that can backfire, whether it be through mimetic deployment or through um, different types of performances on different platforms. But the authenticity of Bernie has always been key and your organizing helped to cultivate the community and you in a lot of ways provided the grounds to shepherd that energy into one of the most successful progressive campaigns in this country's history. And that eventually lands you working for the Bernie campaign. Yeah, I working for the Bernie campaign. I mean, it was, you know, it's a, it's, it's a little cheesy sounding, but it was, it was really kind of like the honor of a lifetime Especially because I, you know, I never went into it. I never went into the whole Reddit thing to telling myself like, you know what this is going to do? This is going to jumpstart my political career. Like I was pretty happy. I was, I, I, I missed the vineyard. I would, I got to like spend uh, my summers and springs and falls more or less in the sun, picking grapes, uh, doing like landscaping work, taking pictures of wine and posting it on this tiny little social media page, like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't glamorous and it wasn't going to pay off my student loans, but 
I was happy. So I didn't go into it thinking like, ah, this is my ticket. Time to time to climb the ladder and make a name for myself and have this big career. I really kind of fell backwards into it. And once I got there, I realized I realized that I, I really enjoyed the work and that I, I, I had been I had been kind of missing out on that deeper mission of trying to make positive change. So I'm really glad I'm really glad I ended up where I ended up. Definitely never saw it coming. I certainly miss the before times a little bit, but um, you know, looking at the way the, the the economic and the political and the the racial landscape, among countless other things, has has shifted over the last five six years. I'm happy that I'm already in the thick of it because um, I think it would have been I think it would have been tough to not know how to help and not know how to play a play a part. I think it's interesting that you say that if people are trying to get in now, it would be pretty difficult to play a part. I kind of look back to an experience that you had um, around the time of the 2016 DNC, and it feels like maybe that was an overarching feeling of the country at the time, and it's become more extreme ever since. It was around the time of the Pizzagate conspiracy theories really beginning to catch wind, but the Sanders for president subreddit right before the DNC gets uh, temporarily uh, paused or shut down um, because the community began to expunge a type of toxicity, a lot of conspiracies, a lot of trolls, a lot of Trump and Clinton people uh, using Sanders for president as kind of a battleground to try to uh, drum up support for their particular candidate. And I think that when we look at a lot of our current issues, be it a conspiracy thinking to try to take down a, an, a hero or an anti-hero, it feels like people are searching for that purpose, but disconnected from uh, the material reality or the forces at bay. And to me, it feels like that makes the case uh, itself in itself for someone like a Bernie and the work that his campaign did to reach out and address the needs of everyday working people to uh, center issues that resonate like Medicare for all or Green New Deal uh, in 2020 and even um, veterans rights and his entire progressive agenda. So looking at these conspiracies and trolls as a hallmark of modern political campaigns, how do you, as someone working in the digital space, address conspiracy thinking, conspiracy action when that seems to be almost center stage at a moment like this? Do you try to drown it out through positive content and staying on messaging or is it a more nuanced issue? I know that you said that content moderation might not have been your space, but in a way, Almost it to me, it seems like you pushing through with more content and press releases ended up kind of working in your favor. Yeah, I I think I think there's everybody's kind of got a different approach to it. And truth be told, like the task of taking on conspiracy, rampant disinformation, fake news is so far above my my pay grade. But what I can say. What I can say is, I, I I think I think the two the two most effective ways to address it. Number one, depending on the person, depending on the group that's doing the yelling, to just not give them that platform, to not give them the time of day. There comes a time where the 
ideological gap can't really be mended. And, um, you know, you, you run into that topic a lot when you talk to people about like, oh, how do you, how do you deal with the fact that your dad voted for Trump? Mine didn't. My dad loves Bernie, but, um, I got, you know, I got uncles. Uh, it's like, how do you deal with the fact that your dad voted for Trump? And it's a really tough question. And I, I don't think there's any right answer, but if you try and try and try and try, and you try to a, a appeal to their, to their better judgment, and you try to find the common ground and you try to find issues that, that you both can relate to, whether it's income inequality in this country, whether it's the lack of access to healthcare, whether it's homelessness or the treatment of veterans or whatever you want to call it, there kind of comes a point where I think it's hard to win in that way. And by continuing to have those debates on their terms, on their platforms, you're, you're kind of legitimizing the the conspiracy, you're legitimizing the fake news, and you're just giving it a bigger audience. You're, you're, you're introducing it to people who might be hearing about it for the very first time. And sure, maybe only 20% of the people who read that, you know, wacky article that day are going to fall for it, or maybe only 10%. But out of a million people, out of 10 million, out of 300 million, it kind of starts to add up. So that's what we tried to do with the subreddit back after the DNC, just to, you know, to tie it back to my relevant experiences. Like you said, the community was splintering and Bernie had dropped out. He had conceded. He had left the race and endorsed Hillary Clinton because uh, he rightfully recognized the kind of existential threat that Donald Trump posed. And we noticed a very deliberate, very coordinated plan from not just the Donald Trump communities, but like the Jill Stein and Green Party communities that went, hey, let's go recruit all these people. We can win them over. Let's bring them onto our side. In hindsight, I don't think shutting the doors all the way was the right move. It kind of disarmed the community as an organizing tool. What I think we should have done instead is is what you've talked about and, and what I think is a slightly more positive way to kind of address the noise, the the constant torrent of of noise and conspiracies and trolling, and that's to ensure that attention and focus and momentum is kept pointing in a positive direction. Don't feed the trolls, make calls instead. That was like a motto that we basically just adopted as a mantra. Like just just fucking ignore them. Make calls, text bank. The more time you spend arguing and bickering on the internet, the less time you're spending calling voters in swing states. That organizing model, and you know, you've a lot of people have kind of adopted the same thing. And we were far from we didn't invent it. Bernie's campaign didn't invent it, but I really like that approach. It kind of combines the best of both worlds. You deny them the attention that they so desperately crave, them being the trolls, and instead you're kind of putting all of your back into something positive. It's, it's kind of, I mean, it, it, it's the best we could come up with at the time, at least. I, I love that though, because in so many ways, the social media landscape is driven on engagement and getting you to react. And in so many ways, it seems like the best ac action you can do is to not react, to not click like, to not respond with the angry face, to, to type the tweet and then delete. 
<laughs> to to just take a yeah, take yeah. a take a pause. It's like it, in days of old, or I guess some people might still do this: writing a letter on parchment and then burning it, um, and not actually ever <laughs> sending it. <laughs> it's so and, dramatic. Yeah, <laughs> but um, you know, it's interesting because I think from the time that the 2000 that bernie's 2016 campaign ends by the 2018 midterm elections we start to see a shift we certainly have uh reddit communities and we certainly still have facebook groups in in the picture and twitter communities and but we start to see the emergence of platforms that were not historically used for political communication suddenly become front and center uh, for many Democratic campaigns, namely Beto O'Rourke and AOC. So you start to cultivate this space of one-to-many live streaming or one-to-many interjections into a politician's life. And that is still in the process of transforming how politicians are communicating and engaging with their constituents. I know you did work with Middle Seat, and I'm curious to know about your thoughts on how political communication is changing in a time when a politician like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez can log on to Twitch and speak to an audience of 300,000 with guests or hop onto IG Live and communicate with 150,000 people and get that message to broadcast television networks the very next morning. Yeah. It it, it has definitely been, you know, as like a as a 29-year-old who was, you know, kind of introduced to the internet at a young age and and has kind of been a part of the online culture or whatever you want to call it for since I was a kid, it's been really fascinating especially the twitch stuff to see that evolve over over time i again it, it kind of comes back to like the secret sauce question and i i'm not i'm not fully there on what the common thread is between all of these people who can kind of so effortlessly capture the hearts and minds of random people from all over the country on the internet you look at, uh, you know, Bernie is, of course, a, a huge example. Uh, Beto in his Senate race, AOC and her Twitch streams, Ilhan Omar and her Gundam memes, Ed Markey and his red Nikes. Like, I don't fully, I don't fully get it. I don't think I'm smart enough of like a sociologist to perfectly thread that needle. But the the traits that I think they all share, they speak from the heart, I think is number one. It, it ties back to the authenticity. They're principled. They let their values do the talking and they let their values do the thinking. More than that, and I think this is a little bit more in the case specifically of like AOC and Beto, they're just you know, they're strong communicators. AOC, definitely. She's kind of like once in a generation levels of captivating and is just so good at taking something as complicated and like draconian as house rules about not having cameras when you're being like onboarded and you're going through all your trainings in the, in the Capitol building and like tweeting out about it in a way that's like, yo, this... Does anyone know about this stuff? This is really crazy. Like these rules are dumb. I don't understand why this is happening. 
but I'm just really excited to be here. And, and she puts it in a language that people can immediately digest and immediately absorb. And that's the other big thing. That's, that's why I love social media so much. And it's why I love to see Ed Markey or like John Ossoff embracing TikTok, for instance, because the whole, the, the value of social media is that it's a free platform and it lets you talk to completely different types of people instantly. The people who are using TikTok are not generally the people who are using Twitter and the people who are using Twitter are not generally the people using Facebook, at least not as their main source of screen consumption. So being able to take your message and maybe the message is just, we need Medicare for all and being able to slightly tweak it and reformat it into a 30 second video or a three minute long Facebook live or an hour long Twitch stream is a really hard to do because people pay me to try to do it for a living and I struggle with it. And yeah, it just, it's, it's especially impressive with, from guys like Ed Markey or Bernie who understand the value of the online and embrace it, even though they, you know, they didn't, they didn't grow up with it. Like, I don't know what kind of cell phone Ed Markey is using these days, but it does make me think of like the fact that Chuck Schumer, I think like still has a Nokia or like some old Motorola flip phone, you know, like, uh, so, so seeing people who, who didn't grow up with the technology and didn't grow up with these platforms, being able for them to be able to effectively translate their message into all the different languages of the internet is, is so fascinating to see. And I think it's, it's, it's what's making like the digital communication space as kind of valuable and as important as it is. I love that you said the languages of the internet, because it seems that there are so many different languages that need almost like that translation work where like TikTok has different conventions than Twitter and Twitter has different conventions than Facebook and Reddit has a lot of the same conventions or grammars of other message boards, but not quite the same as Discord. And I'm just reminded of the first time I felt truly old a few days ago when I read that the regular <laughs> crying laughing emoji is considered to be local, but the cat laughing emoji is now not cringe with Zoomers. So I'm like, oh, okay. Um, that's and that's a whole other. See, yeah. That, that illustrates your point. You just said is considered to be local and like, what? I don't know what you're, I don't even know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. And I just, um, I, yeah, I just learned that too. Local means um, uh, basically normie for generation Z. <laughs> see normie i get normie I, I yeah i grew up with normie yeah okay so that's yeah then and that's and that illustrates the point exactly like like i get paid to do this stuff for a living and i can't keep up and i think that's what makes um that's what makes a candidate like aoc or a digital team um like the one that ed markey put together uh so special and and so uniquely powerful um it's you know it's it's cringe yeah to say this but like they've got a finger on the pulse yeah. in a way that the 95 percent of politicians do not <laughs> um and you can tell just by their fundraising and the enthusiasm online and the the volunteer numbers they get that it works it's paying off um more people should try it it it's fun, kind of, sometimes. 
being online all the time actually isn't all that fun, but <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's effective. It's effective when used right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, I, I have a lead into uh, the penultimate question and that is as someone who's been working in digital for years, is it kind of your nightmare scenario to draw up or strategize a plan and it ends up becoming Pokemon go to the polls? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I still play Pokemon Go when I walk my dog. It's uh, a, <laughs> it, I, I, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Yeah, I play too. <laughs> I, yeah. Oh, I'm, gl- I'm glad. Um, kindred spirits. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I think, I think their team rightfully took uh, some blows for that one. The, the difficult part is you gotta know, you gotta know your audience and you gotta know like how everybody perceives you. Like a guy like, you know, people like Ed Markey and Bernie are kind of viewed as these like old fashioned curmudgeonly, like no nonsense New Englanders, right? Like the, it's, it's weird to say this about my former boss, but the, the perception is almost kind of like grandfatherly. He's a family member, you know, he's your grouchy granddad who's got a firm handshake and can be stubborn as an ox, uh, but has a good heart. Like we all know somebody like that. And there's, I think they also kind of, their teams, and, and at least when I was on the campaign, our teams kind of realized that like, we could kind of just do anything. And the supporters, like people would find a way to find it lovable. And again, I, you know, I, it kind of feels like a cop out because I keep coming back to it. I don't really know 100% why that is. I, I do think a lot of it, I do think a lot of it is, I think there's some sexism at play. I think another part is just kind of, you know, the online is just a little more left than center. And that gives less progressive candidates an automatic disadvantage, even if they are being their, their authentic selves. And they're being corny and silly and genuine. And, you know, maybe they're not trying to score political points, but just the way they say things is funny. Um, but it kind of gives them a disadvantage. Right. Like I'm reminded of the reaction to Pete Buttigieg's high hope stance as an example. Yeah. And, and, and for whatever reason, for better or for worse, like, you know, he, he wasn't going to get my vote in the primary. But he kind of got roasted for it. But then if you talk to his supporters, they're like, yeah, that was just the most fun thing ever. That was so much fun. I love the internet. Yeah. Uh, like another example is like Amy Klobuchar's kind of cheesy one-liners. Um, I always kind of groaned when when she said it, not for like any serious political reason. Like I just, you know, it was, I'm not a huge fan of like puns, but my, my mother-in-law loved them just thought it was so funny and like uh like it, it reminded her of her own kind of like silly cheesy one-liners so i think i think so much of it too is just you know everyone's got their like preconceived notions of what's charming and what's not and what's authentic and what's not and what's corny and what's cringe and what's normy and there does seem to be you know like when someone does something that a very large block of the internet thinks is cringe they're going to kind of hear about it. And that's kind of the nature of, uh, I don't want to say groupthink because I think that gets used as like a boogeyman word. Yeah. Uh, the hive, the hive mind. <laughs> but uh, a lot of people feel the same way about jokes and puns and cheesy one-liners as everybody else. Like 
it's not, it's not this vast conspiracy, you know, maybe just the people who mostly spend their time on Reddit don't find it funny, or maybe the people who tweet the most think it's corny. Um, I don't really know. Like that's, we'd have to get like data scientists in here to kind of conduct this big study on like, <laughs> did you like the high hopes dance? Yes, no. What are your thoughts on Bernie's mittens? Yes, no. Do you want a Pokemon go to the polls? Are you chilling in Cedar <laughs> Rapids? Like that kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah. It's a, that's a, that's a, a, a big abstract question that I'm oh, yeah. only so qualified to talk about. Yeah. I mean, so that brings us to, I think, a question that you're uniquely qualified to answer because you're working on these solutions. What do you feel are the biggest challenges facing progressives in the digital space today? Who I think I'm going to take this in two directions. I think the biggest challenge that faces progressives as candidates is that there are there is a lot of kind of inadvertent gatekeeping to maybe that's not the right way of putting it the the financial barriers to run for office and to build a strong in-house digital team and a, a organizing program field and texting and phone calls is so immense and it is really 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 hard almost impossibly so for like first time candidates for uh especially for those who primary incumbent Democrats, doesn't matter how awful the incumbent is. There's just so many wheeling and dealing of favors and kind of smoky backroom deals going on. Like that's not, you know, it's not a conspiracy. Like it's just, that's how much of the political system is situated, even on the Democratic side. That financial barrier is 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 ludicrous. Um, and it kills a lot of campaigns before they can even get started because- they can't meet fundraising thresholds. They can't hire staff. They can't run ads. They can't get their name out there. And big donors don't want to give to them because they don't want to piss off the person that they think is going to win. And that makes it really hard for grassroots donors to ever find out about it because you got to start with money to get the word out, to get the grassroots donors in the door. Like unless you get kind of, unless you catch lightning in a bottle and you can do it all organically... And that is not something you can count on. And that is a Herculean effort. It's really, really, really difficult to pull off. So I think, I think as, as, as far as progressive candidates goes, that is maybe barrier number one is the, the bar of entry is set impossibly high. And it's why, like, it's not a coincidence that the most, that the people who are able to buck that trend, the AOCs, the Ilhans, Jamal Bowman, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, Katie Porter, they're kind of few and far between. Like I think they're they're prolific in their own right, but they're also so special because there's so few of them. Like they're the ones, they're the very few who kind of manage to break that mold and to kind of break on through to the other side. The vast majority of the people in Congress do it the very traditional way, which is lots of high dollar fundraising. Um they're they're rarely threatened by primary challenges from the left and you know they don't invest a lot in digital and they can just kind of coast along and win their elections without uh you know without having to like go full court press on like digital organizing and and uh let's knock on a million doors kind of thing how did you decide to start bread and roses following your experience with the bernie campaign so you know so i was a i was a 
a consultant at a digital agency um, that did work for Beto's Senate race, that did work for AOC's primary, that did work for Ayanna Presley and Justice Democrats and National Nurses United and Ro Khanna and all these great, 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 great clients. And I left to join Bernie's second presidential campaign. And as that was happening, I I also started getting uh, much more deeply involved in the Campaign Workers Guild, which is the which is kind of a first of its kind national U.S. union made by current and former campaign workers, exclusively for campaign workers and um, like progressive like digital strategists. And so the the inspiration kind of came in two in two waves. Wave number number one was seeing firsthand how just kind of atrocious a lot of the working conditions are on an infinite number of campaigns and nonprofits and digital agencies all across the country. Burnout is high. Turnover rate is high. You know, people are like constantly working nights and weekends and like they don't get overtime pay. They maybe get a $1,000 bonus, $2,000 bonus at the end of the year after averaging 55 hour work weeks, 12 months, like doesn't really, you know, something's not adding up there. So that was that was a big part of it, was kind of the rage I felt uh, sitting in on bargaining sessions or talking to campaign staff or, you know, staffers at these organizations and hearing the same, same thing over and over and over again. And it broke my heart and it really pissed me off. The other inspiration, it's, 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 it's tied to it, is seeing the difference in the working conditions between Bernie 2016 and Bernie 2020. While the campaign still had its fair share of flaws across the board, um, there was a much bigger emphasis on uh, paid time off, on blackout days where, you know, you would take, you would, you'd get a day or two off each week, as long as you weren't within like two weeks of the election. Pay was better Healthcare was fully covered. They were a lot better about like providing tech for the workers and like reimbursing people for the relocation fees and all that stuff. Um, and a lot of that came about a because you know the the leadership felt like pushing the envelope a bit with um, kind of setting a bar for other presidential campaigns to meet. But really, it was the workers who did that. They fought for the union and they fought for all these differences and they fought for all these improvements and protections. And they didn't get everything. It it was far from a perfect contract and it was far from a perfect workspace. But it was night and day better than 2016. And it didn't get in the way of his success. It, It didn't get in the way of fundraising. It didn't get in the way of any of the things that bosses typically use as an excuse to encourage their staff not to unionize. And so those two things were really kind of the inspiration. I, 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 I saw a need and, and see it today to prove that the model of exceptionally high paid campaign managers, consulting CEOs, m- managers and staff and like much lower paid, but extremely overworked workers. I, I don't think, I don't buy into the, the idea that that's the way it has to be. I don't buy into the idea that these agencies and these campaigns don't have the money to pay their workers more fairly, 
that they don't have the, the resources or capacity to be more aggressive about kind of rooting out racism in the workplace, about rooting out sexism and misogyny and harassment and, and you know, cracking down on abusers. I, I don't buy it. I've seen, I've seen it proven otherwise time and time again. I've seen through these unions, I've seen these workplaces really fight hard to kind of become more equitable and more fair and, and more balanced. And, and that at, at the core is kind of the, the mission of, of Bread and Roses is we're going to do the, the fundraising and the social media and the graphic design and the organizing and the websites and the ads just as well as anybody else. But my salary is going to be capped. People are going to have, you know, benefits as far as the eye can see. The longer term goal, and it's it's proving to be a little more complicated to implement than I than I thought, or rather more time intensive. But I want it to be worker owned. I want profits to be shared across the board. I don't want it to be in a situation where you know I'm I'm raking in a quarter of a million dollars because we were lucky enough to land a presidential candidate or something who's paying us obscene amounts of money to, to do ads or emails or whatever, because I'm not the one doing the work. Everybody else is like, we're all doing the work The the agency doesn't exist without each and every piece working together towards a collective goal. So it makes no sense for me to kind of monopolize all that to myself. And that in a roundabout sort of way, uh, you'll notice I do like to meander a bit, but but that that at its core, to make a long story even longer, is really the 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 goal and the the mission of Bread and Roses. And I think that's so needed right now. Solidarity with your workers and to lower the barriers of entry to some of these campaigns uh, to be able to even run or to get a seat at the table or to feel heard and to to help reach people where they already are in an equitable and socially responsible way. And I think that's the beautiful potential of Bread and Roses. And I think that you are definitely the right person to be spearheading this endeavor. So uh, Aiden, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, where can people keep up with you and where can people keep up with Bread and Roses? The, the best way to stay in touch right now, I don't tweet very often, but my Twitter handle is at AidenKingVT, despite living in DC. You know, I got to stay true to my roots. And as Bread and Roses continues to grow and we we add some new partners and clients and, and start to hire uh, an initial team of people. We'll be posting updates to at Bread Roses LLC on Twitter. Thank you to Aiden again for joining us on the Digital Void podcast. To learn more about Digital Void and to find show notes of today's episode and all previous conversations, you can visit us on the web at digitalvoid.media. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back next week.